welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. Nuclear smuggling always had a presence in contested areas between Ukraine and Moldova in the Transnistria area and between Georgia and the Russian Federation on the eastern side of the Black Sea. And now all of Ukraine is contested area. So this is where we can't get access, where we don't know what's going on. In this episode, David Smith, visiting senior research fellow in the Department of War Studies, gives us an insight into the world of nuclear forensics touching on some of the biggest nuclear security challenges in recent years, the war in Ukraine, nuclear trafficking, and COVID-19. Into the night. In the midnight hours of May 29th, 1999, a car with a lone driver heading north approached the Rus-Bulgaria checkpoint on the Danube River that separates Bulgaria from Romania. The vehicle stopped at the Rus kiosk as part of routine border crossing formalities. But something here was certainly not routine. The on-duty Bulgarian border officer suspected more was at play than a midnight driver heading north. He was traveling alone, having set out from Turkey. He had no luggage. There were too many similarities to the narcotics trade where drugs were smuggled along the same route. The officer instructed the driver to pull aside to an adjacent secondary screening location. The driver then made the mistake of offering a cash bribe. The Bulgarian authorities began a careful search of the suspect in his vehicle. Within a portable air compressor located in the car's boot, a small lead container was discovered alongside a paper invoice written in Cyrillic that indicated the lead container contained a glass ampule filled with 99.99% enriched uranium-235, stuff of atomic bombs. The sample was transferred to the Bulgarian Institute for Nuclear Research and Nuclear Energy in Sofia, where examinations commenced to determine its exact nature. So began the modern application of nuclear forensics as a tool to address the serious threat of nuclear and other radioactive material out of regulatory control. So what was this material? The Bulgarians had arrested a smuggler transporting four grams of 72.2 atom percent enriched uranium-235 as an extremely fine-grained uranium oxide powder. The sample also indicated the uranium at one point had been irradiated in a nuclear reactor. Due to the absence of national laws in Bulgaria covering nuclear smuggling at that time, the driver pled guilty to a customs violation and was subsequently released. However, later material and packaging, which was determined to be of the same origin, was found in a sting operation in France and in Chisinau, Moldova. These smaller quantities provide insight into the transboundary nature of illicit trafficking, and in particular emphasize vulnerabilities associated with the security of these materials, with many similar incidents having occurred in the last few decades. Nuclear forensic science serves as a preventive and response to smuggling incidents, linking people, places, material, and events. With that knowledge, guards can be trained, 
fences can be fixed, alarms can be louder, gates can be locked, and these vulnerable materials can be better secured for all of us. Welcome to the War Studies podcast. My name is Lauren Midgley, and I'm based in the School of Security Studies. Today, I'm talking to David Smith, visiting senior research fellow in the Department of War Studies and long-term friend of the Centre for Science and Security at King's College London. David's work focuses on technical outreach to address the threat from nuclear and other radioactive material out of regulatory control. He has held various leadership and technical staff positions in nuclear security and international security engagement, and from 2010 to 2020 served as a nuclear security coordinator at the International Atomic Agency in Vienna, the World Center for Cooperation in the Nuclear Field, where he led the Radiological Crime Scene Response and Nuclear Forensic Science Team. Thanks so much for joining me today, David, to talk about this really important topic, the role of nuclear forensics in national security. As you stated to me in your email and really emphasised in your case study, nuclear trafficking is not the stuff of James Bond fiction, but is very much a real and documented threat. So how common are cases of trafficking nuclear and radioactive material, like the one we heard about in your introduction? The IAEA is the definitive agency that collects confirmed incidents from 139 of its 193 member states who report to the incident trafficking database. And since 1993 through the end of uh, 2019, there's been some 3,686 confirmed incidents reported of material outside of regulatory control. However, of those, only about 290 or 8% involve uh, illicit trafficking or nuclear smuggling per se, where we have organized networks of potential sellers working with with buyers to conduct unauthorized transactions and and smuggle nuclear materials. And 73 incidents or 64% of the the total that involve other violations of uh, civil controls of nuclear or radioactive materials, uh, materials that are lost, stolen, abandoned, improperly disposed of, transported in unapproved ways or other violations more of the civil regulatory construct. So this these do not involve nuclear smuggling incidents. The IEA um, in the nuclear security world is concerned about nuclear materials, but also about radioactive materials. And of the 3,686 incidents that are reported, 15% involve nuclear materials and 58% involve radioactive materials. There's about 30% that involve radiologically contaminated materials. So this could be disposed of uh, construction materials uh, that contains mixtures of radioactive sources. So the agency works closely with scrapyards and metal recyclers throughout the world. There's about 150 incidents a year that get reported to the IEA and think that as we move through this current time of conflict in Ukraine, it's important to stay vigilant and concerned when there's lack of communication, when there's lack of physical protection, all of these problems get exacerbated. And top of it, when you have large movements of people, refugees and others that are fleeing these areas, these are conduits and pathways where material potentially can also escape regulatory control. So we need to, on top of everything else, we're worried about right now. This is yet something else that as an international community, we need to uh, keep our focus on. 
Whose responsibility is it to combat this illicit trafficking and maintain nuclear security? Nuclear security, which we're talking about now, context of nuclear forensics, is the responsibility of states. And it doesn't enjoy a nuclear forensics treaty or a single international legal instrument. There are many UN Security Council resolutions. I think the one that is probably the most actionable right now is the 2016 Amendment to the Convention on the Physical Protection of Nuclear Material that expands the teeth of that convention, not only to potential security of nuclear material in transit, but also to nuclear material that might be smuggled and puts the onus on states to return that material under regulatory control, as well as prosecute those responsible for diverting it originally. What we're really trying to do internationally is prepare states within their own jurisdictions to use their own national laws to enhance and strengthen nuclear security practice nationally, regionally, and alternately then internationally. And so the whole idea is, again, not to involve the IEA in the sovereign affairs of individual states relative to nuclear radioactive materials that they may maintain, but to provide them tools to meet the international expectations as well as the prescriptions of their own national laws. And so in the case of nuclear security, it's as, as much about developing technology as it is about promoting the legal construct and the environment that allows states to successfully conclude criminal prosecutions that both address lapses in the civil side of regulations related to nuclear security, as well as the criminal side involving nuclear smuggling, like I spoke to in my introduction. So how do states work together? The idea is that what we try and do is share best practice. Those insights and, and those lessons can provide information on how nuclear and radioactive material was actually produced and what unique data characteristics or signatures are contained within it due to different production processes. And by trying to share common techniques that involve the analysis of this material, we can tease out those signatures and those data characteristics and provide insights into where material encountered out of regulatory control actually was manufactured or how it was manufactured, but also in other cases, signatures that might have been transited by smugglers. Maybe it incorporated some pollen or dust or some other clues that also tell us something about the route that it took. And so it's those stories and those analytical experiences um, and outcomes that are so very, very important. And those are the things that are shared among states. It's unlikely that unless there are bilateral agreements, states would in every case collaborate. Sometimes as material goes missing, states prefer to use their, their own sovereignty to pursue investigations because they have specific sources and methods that they want to use and they don't want to share them. However, some of the, the tools and the tool chest can be shared. And that's where international collaboration is so very, very important. And ultimately, the whole of nuclear security is really greater than some of the parts because all these different nation states and, and, and 
different investigators can, within the confines of their own restrictions on what they can and can't say, can share their experiences and outcomes one to another. And by through that sharing and that partnership and those collaborations, it promotes the, the strength of nuclear forensic science globally. Unfortunately, at the moment, there is this ongoing horrific war in Ukraine. And as I'm sure our listeners have read about in the press, this has created international concern over nuclear security. And not just in respect to the potential of Russia launching a nuclear attack, but also as to whether Ukraine will be able to maintain its many nuclear power plants. So what are some of the main security concerns surrounding this? So within a sovereign state, we have a risk assessment and defense in in depth that relates to maintaining robust controls over nuclear materials. The war and the military conflict has upended all of this. So we don't have the assurances and confidence that the material protection control and accounting is working as it should. Now, the one thing we should say is the IAEA so far has said that due to the many strong efforts of the Ukrainian experts, that both in terms of nuclear nonproliferation and safeguards and nuclear security, that the Ukrainians have done a, a valiant job of maintaining accountancy from a safeguards perspective and also security. I think the the issue here is that we have technologies that supply over 55% of the civilian power supply to Ukraine, VVER reactors that were designed by the Russian Federation. When you have an invading force, structures are degraded and compromised. You know, people are worried about shutting off of electrical power and that sort of thing that potentially could affect cooling ponds that contains on-site spent nuclear fuel. That's true, but there's also things like cameras and lights and other very more innocuous type of security measures, computer controls also get thrown off. And so nuclear security compromises rely on the the weakest link. I think we also have seen there's new tactics being applied in in this theater of war. So unfortunately, I, I think that potential theft of nuclear materials is something that certainly could be possible. We always see trouble with vulnerabilities in contested areas. So nuclear smuggling always had a presence in contested areas between Ukraine and Moldova in the Transnistria area and between Georgia and the Russian Federation on the eastern side of the Black Sea in Abscessia and South Ossetia. And now all of Ukraine is contested area. So this is where we can't get access, where we don't know what's going on. We can't have experts go in. And so it, it's reliant on continued attention that this is an important problem. And I would say also that The Russian Federation would not want to further degrade the health and welfare of Eastern Europe through lost opportunities to maintain the security over nuclear and radioactive materials. I think that that would just be another bad outcome of this conflict. Going back to your point that we don't have eyes on the ground at the moment, obviously there was the attack on the, and excuse my pronunciation, the Zeporizhia nuclear power plant earlier in the year. And Russian forces also occupied Chernobyl for 38 days, which from the catastrophic nuclear disaster in 1986 still has an exclusion zone with high levels of radiation that Russian forces actually entered. Were we completely in the dark to the impact of these two incidents? 
We certainly saw in the case of Chernobyl that there was in some indications of heightened levels of radiation, apparently due to the movement of military equipment from the Russian Federation. And there was some reporting of digging of trenches that released some dispersal radioactivity. There, there are ways when there is dispersible radionuclides that are disturbed for detecting those. Of course, there's the IEA uses remote sensing and satellite imagery that are available to it. Mr. Grossi, the head of the IEA, has certainly provided equipment and radiation detectors and these sorts of things. As far as I know, as of today, other than he and him, the senior leadership team going to Ukraine, I, I don't know if there is a deployment per se. I think if there was an absolute emergency, the agency might be in a position to, to respond. But in terms of providing a more of an umbrella of the conventional type of sites, part of the arrangements under safeguards or nuclear security in, in terms of regular assessments. I think those are impossible. Having worked at the IEA, the safety and, and the welfare of the experts comes first. And so putting them in harm's way is certainly something that is first and foremost. It isn't that we're completely in a, in a dark room without a, a torch or a flashlight. I do have some insights. And what worries me in the aftermath of the war also is this will you're going to go into a big stew of post-war and trying to make sense of it and trying to unravel how effective the inventories in, in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis nuclear radioactive materials were maintained is going to be very, very complicated. And so I think this is also where nuclear, for, <clears throat> nuclear forensics as a means to identify the origin in source and history of nuclear radioactive materials is going to be very, very important as well. But we're now we're still denied that access because of the active conflict. But I think in the aftermath, hopefully that'll come as, as soon as possible. We pray for that. But whenever the war ends, this is going to also be a legacy we're going to have to immediately turn our attention to as well. One thing I found fascinating in my research for this podcast was the discussion around nuclear power playing an essential role in clean energy transitions in net zero strategies. And I'm wondering if the war in Ukraine has changed any minds on the promise of nuclear power, given the insecurity it poses in conflict settings. I think some of the source terms and some of the breaches and some of the and, and attacks on the civilian power stations and also the exclusion zones at Chernobyl may have put more questions in people's mind about the viability of, of nuclear energy. And certainly, I think some of the conventional wisdom, of course, in, in Europe is that we need to wean ourselves away from oil and gas in the context of sanctions, that oil and gas coming from the Russian Federation. And so people said, well, gee, you know, th this would be a renaissance of, of nuclear power. And of course, if you look in the United States with small modular reactors and whatnot, there, there has been a big increase in the 2022 budget in, in this regard to advance reactor technologies. Now we can see that these facilities are, are vulnerable and potentially are attractive targets. It was interesting that the Russians actually went into Chernobyl. Maybe they used it because they, they felt if they deployed their forces around the power plant that they wouldn't be attacked. I think on the one side, of course, there may be a facilitation to nuclear as part of a of a balanced carbon neutral energy portfolio. That, that's certainly true, but we can also see that there's another side to this as well, that there are these 
nuclear and radioactive source terms that are, are vulnerable. And so I think both arguments are important, but I obviously there would be a, a nuclear renaissance, I think, or a reliance on new technologies, the thorium fuel cycle and other things. Uh, but what we have to do is make sure there's not going to be these wars and, and military excursions that compromise all of our decades of efforts to protect these facilities and, and these inventories. I'm now going to mention, you know, the word that sensor shut it down most people's spine, COVID-19. Has that caused any concerns over nuclear security or led to any changes in current safeguarding measures used by states? I think it certainly has. The consequence of fissile nuclear material escaping regulatory control is profound. I think what COVID has done is told us that we have to further our ability to respond despite the challenges of the pandemic, despite the closure of laboratories, despite people not working offices, despite the difficulties in in coming together and in a meeting room and addressing this, ultimately has strengthened nuclear security and particularly nuclear forensics internationally. I think we've pivoted very much to a, a virtual world. People are now more comfortable and able to exchange information in these new formats uh, to continue their work where maybe we can't have fully staffed laboratories. What we really have tried to do is conduct exercises and understand the capability limit of what we're up against and make sure that there are no bottlenecks or there is no impediments to providing a robust response in nuclear security and nuclear forensics. In many ways, COVID has certainly been a strengthener because I think we've been confronted with more difficulties in the nuclear security environments, but really work through them. I would also say as well that it's not just COVID. I think around the world, we see a lot of environmental issues in terms of extreme storms or fires or other environmental challenges. Nuclear facilities are located in many cases because of the cooling water required for nuclear reactor operations in low-lying areas. So working through those issues as well, we have to build in resilience. And so in the areas of COVID environment and and these political changes, I think we're, we're working through them. And we see confidence that ultimately, again, everyone realizes what's at stake here and has risen to those challenges. So now we're moving on to our features section, where we look at the researcher behind the research. And I don't know about everyone else, but nuclear forensics was never brought up in any careers talks when I was younger. So I'm curious what led you to get involved in this field? So my academic training is as a geologist. Back many, many years ago, I I studied the geologic evolution of mountain ranges in California. A lot of the tools that I used were involved isotopes and trace elements that actually are fractionated and partitioned and differentiate themselves based on chemical conditions deep in the Earth's crust. While I found those outcomes and interpretations very, very satisfying after the breakup of the former Soviet Union, I got quite interested in trying to take some of those lessons and use them to address 
compelling real world, real time issues that confronted all of us. And that led me to the US National Laboratories, in particular Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, to take some of those academic examples and try and see how they fit relative to the breakup of the former Soviet Union, where there was a flood of materials being intercepted in Western Russia, Eastern Europe, and also in Western Europe, as I spoke to in my introduction. That was something that allowed me to get in very early on with influential scientists around the world, both in Europe and in the United States of America, as, as well as many others internationally. Being able to take these analytical techniques, understand something about the experience during nuclear weapons production and testing, allowed us to provide definitive answers about where these smuggled materials were coming from that were very, very important. Over time, the science evolved, but I think more importantly, the implementation evolved. And so I got very interested through engagement and through outreach, helping states understand what nuclear forensics is and how it could be applied using their indigenous capabilities. Not every state has the same scientific capabilities as United Kingdom, for instance, but they certainly have some experience maybe in research or the medical setting or other environments where they can use radiological or nuclear experts. We need to reach those individuals, provide them with guidance, promote confidence relative to potential application of nuclear security and nuclear forensics. So it's been a uh, a long, long journey over the past 25 or 30 years in nuclear forensics, but one that I think ultimately has contributed to better security practices uh, for everyone. I'd be really interested to hear if you worked on a particular case or whether there was a moment in an investigation that really shocked or surprised you. The short answer is yes. I was working in a case around the Black Sea region. I won't mention which state was involved, but there was a rash of intercepts of some material that was purported to be nuclear material, and it was being offered on the black market for appreciable sums. The state security services confiscated this black material, and it turned out that in case after case, it wasn't actually any uranium or plutonium. It was just ground up black charcoal. And so over time, the security services confiscated enough of these that they they just took all this evidence and put it aside in a police station. One day someone came in to the police station, was wearing a radiation pager, and they walked by this inventory locker that was right in the middle of the police station with all the officials present, and it actually alarmed. And what had happened was in this particular incident, there was another seizure that police assumed was ground up charcoal, but actually involves some enriched uranium. And this material then went to the police locker and no one paid any attention to it until many, many weeks later when this radiation alarm was actually triggered. That certainly was something that was very disconcerting for us and raised awareness that every case needs to be treated with a potential maximum consequence attached to it. So fortunately, there was not any substantive public health issues involved, but that particular incident was certainly one that was very sobering for me. 
You're currently a visiting senior research fellow at King's, as well as being a long-term friend of the Centre for Science and Security. So why did you decide to take up this position? Well, I have had a long association with the Department of War Studies. Many of the colleagues there have been quite involved with the International Atomic Energy Agency. And largely this had to do, I think, with outreach and mentoring to orient people to the nuclear security topic. As we discussed earlier, it involves aspects of preventive controls, guards, gates, and guns, radiation detection, response, nuclear security culture. But a big part of it also is education. What I did early on in my IEA career is come to King's and provide an orientation to what nuclear forensics is and what nuclear forensics isn't, its differences between nuclear security and nuclear nonproliferation, for instance, and then take people through sort of a, a mock exercise, actually get young students thinking about the actual process in, involved. And one of the things that I also took great pleasure in was trying to represent the nuclear forensic community. And in several cases, we had graduate students from King's who went on to join the IAEA. I think nuclear forensics is only as good as the new ideas and the new people involved, particularly women and young scientists and others that haven't been as represented in the past. And as the opportunity to pursue this uh, prestigious visiting research fellowship came, I felt what I would like to do is take my years of experience and apply it in the case of King's College, where there's so many talented students, and use that as a feeder to bring more good ideas and more good people to nuclear security practice. And I'm sure our students and staff will be so pleased to have you on the King's team, David, to learn from someone with your level of knowledge and expertise firsthand. So I want to just say a massive thank you for firstly agreeing to be on the podcast and for also being a fantastic guest. It's been a really fascinating discussion and I hope it encourages our listeners to go out and learn more about nuclear forensics. Thank you, Lauren. As I said, anything I can do to uh, try and get this message out is a morning well spent. You've been listening to the War Studies podcast, produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen, Lauren Midgley and Ellie Bignall from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast.